This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that the issue that divides man from God is sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sin and everyone's sin on the cross. All sin, past, present, and future was dealt with on the cross. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we have eternal salvation. Sin is not the issue. However, as in any family, when there is disobedience, when there is sin, which is a violation of God's character or his mandates, there is a breach in the fellowship within the family. But God has provided a great solution there as well. It doesn't involve uh, penance. It doesn't involve uh, trying to generate sorrow for sin to impress God with your uh, sincerity. It simply involves admission or acknowledgement of sin to God, recognizing that on the cross that sin was paid for, but that we have to admit or acknowledge our sins and at that point, we're forgiven. We are cleansed of all other sin, all sins that we've forgotten about, all sin that we are unaware of is sin. And we are immediately restored to fellowship and recover that sanctifying, spiritual growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit that continues to move us in the direction of Christ-like character. So before we study the Word, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our deep gratitude that we have this opportunity to study your word, to recognize that you, the creator of all things, have spoken to us, and that you have guaranteed the accuracy of this communication down through the ages, that we have the privilege of having in our hands, in our laps, the, the revelation that you have given down through the centuries, the sufficient, complete revelation, and that as we come to understand it, we have a orientation to all of history, to your plan, and to what will take place in the future. Now, as we study the things we uh, begin with this morning, we pray that you would help us to focus, to understand, and that it would give us a greater understanding of why we're here, what our lives mean, what our purpose is, and what our future destiny will be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and we are down around verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, 
in that general area as we are coming close to the end of this particular chapter. Well, the last couple of weeks, of course, I was away. I was in Israel having a tremendous uh, time with various people from the congregation and extended congregation who are uh, interested in studying the Word. And so it's always great to have that kind of time uh, with members of the congregation. As a pastor, it's it's a different kind of thing because you're, you're, you're living 24-7 just about with people in your congregation, so they get to know you, you get to know them. I don't know which may gain the greatest danger for people, but uh, it's always an uh, enjoyable time to uh, travel together and see what happens over there. And there's always little surprises, like the day we were crossing over uh, the Jordan into Jordan, and um, the guy turned around in front of me and said, well, you're all from Texas, where are you from? And we said, Houston, and he was from Tyler, and he said he was with World of the Bible Ministries Tour. And I said, well, I've known you tour leaders since high school, so where's Randy? And uh, we and all day that day and the next day we kept bumping into that group and and I got to spend some time with my uh, good friend Randall Price. So and that's something we need to add to our prayer list. I'm glad I thought of that. Uh, Randy's going to be doing some dangerous things the next couple of days. For you that don't know of Randall Price, Randy and I went through seminary. We first met working at Camp Isle together the summer of 1970. We went through seminary together, studied Hebrew together, studied archaeology together. He went on from there to uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem where he studied for two years, and all the lectures there were in Hebrew. Came back here, pastored, and then went back to the University of Texas to get his Ph.D. in Mideastern Studies. All of his classes were in Hebrew. So he is within our general camp of premillennial, pre-trib, dispensational, uh, Bible-believing people. Randy is just one of the best in his field of archaeology, his field of uh, uh, various deals, various things dealing with Dead Sea Scrolls, dealing with uh, history of Israel. He's produced a number of excellent books, and he's working on a book on the Ark. And he's going to be spending the next 10 days, 12 days in Israel uh, trying to get some of the artifacts that they discovered at Qumran. Remember, they were digging there last year. Pam stayed for a few days to dig. And unfortunately, Randy's mother passed away and they had to come back. But they're trying to get some of those into the Shrine of the Book Museum, which is the museum related to the, uh, the scrolls that they found at Qumran. So he'll be doing that the next couple of weeks, and we ought to pray for him and for his safety while he's traveling around Israel. But then he's leaving, and he's going up to Turkey, and he's going along the Syrian-Turkish border. He'll be going up to the traditional Mount Ararat, which is in the northwestern uh, corner of Turkey on the border with Russia. But there is an alternate site that has, in the opinion of many uh, conservative archaeologists and biblical scholars, has a perhaps a longer history and a, a greater uh, support for the location of the ark in southeast, uh, excuse me, southwestern uh, Turkey on the Syrian border area referred to as Mount Judy. The current designation of the mountains to the north of Ararat, which we see on maps today, did not come into existence until the uh, New, early New Testament era. That is not a historical uh, name for that area, one that goes back into deep antiquity. So there's, uh, Randy's going to be going there. This is an area where the uh, Turkish army in the last few weeks has amassed troops. 
They, uh, while I was in Israel, we heard that the Turks had bombed a couple of Iraqi villages and not Kurdish villages. There's also problems with the Kurds on the border there, and, of course, it's very close to Syria. One of the churches where Randy will be speaking, where there is a missionary that their church from San Marcos supports, is um, uh, ha- was infiltrated by Muslim, radical Muslims in the last year. They identified several... Uh, Muslims who had converted to Christianity in that village, and in the last uh, six or eight months, there were about uh, 15 or 20 of these uh, uh, previous Muslims, now Christians, who were who were killed by these radical Islamists. So, uh, we need to be in prayer for Randy and what he is what he's doing there. But that was great to run into him and just to go places I'd been before and gain a little more knowledge and go to some other places that. Uh, always helps to put together not only events that occurred in the past, but to help understand an orientation to what will transpire in the future when the Lord comes back. And there's always a lot of foundation for the events that occur in the future in Revelation. So we've come to this, towards the end of this opening prelude to the tribulation period. Revelation 4 and 5, as we've studied, is... A focus on what is going on in heaven, and there's this shift that takes place of the scenes as we go through Revelation 4 through 19. There will be a heavenly scene, then an earthly scene, then a heavenly scene, and an earthly scene. So we'll go back and forth, and as we go uh, through these chapters, we'll constantly need to come back to get the big picture and to orient, and every now and then we're, we need to drill down a little deeper into a particular phrase or uh, allusion in a verse just so we understand that because it's a topic that will be coming up in the future. Now, if you remember, as we got into this section, we saw a fantastic worship scene as the Lamb of God comes forward to take up this scroll. That scroll, if you remember, represents the title deed the contractual basis for divine ownership of planet Earth. as And that ownership was uh, bequeathed to man in the Garden of Eden. Man, was, as the image of God, was to rule and reign over the planet. But they gave that up uh, to Satan. Satan has been operating as the prince and power of the air and, and the king of the God of this age all throughout history since Adam's fall in Genesis chapter Three And now at the end of history, we see that God is going to finally make things right. There is a time where justice is going to be enacted and all injustices throughout history made right. And man has been waiting for this. Why, the psalmist often said, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And what happens in the tribulation period is God is finally going to bring all things to a conclusion, but it's not simply a conclusion in human history. It is a conclusion in the history of all of God's creation, including that of the angels. For human history, as we've studied in the past and we'll study more in the future, fits within a greater framework of an angelic conflict, a war that broke out among the angels at some time in the past when the highest of all the angels named Lucifer uh, chose to be worshipped, to be gr- become greater than God, and led approximately a third of the angels away from God 
to follow him in his angelic rebellion. And we really can't make full sense of a lot of Scripture. We can't make full sense of, of a lot of prophecy unless we can fit it within this broader umbrella of what we call the angelic conflict or the angelic rebellion. And I haven't addressed that so much in our study of Revelation so far, but in these verses we are again introduced to angels, and since we're at the beginning of this section of the tribulation from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19, it's a good place to uh, take another uh, sidestep We just finished a lengthy series on what redemption is because of that is not only a past tense uh, reality at the cross, but the uh, full enactment of redemption on creation comes when the Lord returns. And now we have a, a correlation with the angels. So just look at these verses. Now when he, that is the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, remember that's a class of angels, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. These are human beings representing the church. They're not symbolic. They are representational. In the same way that in the Old Testament, the the entire host of Levitical priests were represented by 24 that served in the temple. So we have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and they fall down and worship before the Lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we see music and prayer as fundamental to worship. And then in verse 9 and 10, we studied these uh, textual issues. It should read, And they sang a new song that they there refers to the entire group, saying, You are worthy. And this first quote is of the 24 elders. They sang antiphonally. So one group sang one thing, the other group, the angels, sang something in response. So the first group sang, You, to the Lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. See, that can't be angels. That's only human beings. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we spent about four weeks studying the doctrine of redemption and uh, what that entailed. Verse 10 is now sung by the living creatures, the four living creatures, and now we're told that there are a host of angels that surround the throne as well. And these living creatures sing, and you have made them, referring to the church-age believers, literally a kingdom. The uh, King James and New King James translates it kings. It should be translated a kingdom, a domain. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they, referring to the uh, resurrected, raptured, rewarded church-age believers, they shall reign on the earth. This anticipates our millennial function as priests who will reign under the Lord Jesus Christ over uh, the planet earth. Then we come to 5.11. Then, John says, I looked. This is the next scene. He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the second category, and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. It's literally myriad upon myriad and kiliad upon kiliad, kiliad being the word for thousands in the Greek. 
Now, the first thing we should note is the introduction now for the first time of the fact that there's a greater number of people around the throne that have not been identified before called the many angels. And we have these three groups, the angels, the living creatures, and the 24 elders. And then we read the number of them. Now, the question is, the number of them, does this, does the them, the pronoun, simply refer to the last mentioned, which would be the elders, or does it refer to the entire group? And the difficulty grammatically is these other nouns are all masculine nouns, and masculine genitive plurals, they all have the same ending, so grammatically it's impossible to identify whether he's speaking to one or to uh, of one of those groups or of the entire group. It is most likely from context, he's referring to the whole group as a group. It's composed of three different sets of creatures, the angels, the living creatures, living beings, and the elders. And of the entire crowd that's around the throne, it's innumerable. That's the 10,000 times 10,000 or myriad upon myriads. That's uh, would, and then thousands upon thousands is simply a hyperbolic way of expressing the vast number. It could be uh, 10 million, 20 million. It's just a, an uncountable number of creatures surrounding the throne, all singing praise to God. This reveals to us, again, the role of the angels in the book of Revelation. So I wanted to... Uh, digress a little bit for several weeks to just talk about this doctrine of the angelic conflict and the role of angels in Revelation. Every now and then I get a call from somebody who says, well, do you have anything on the angelic conflict? And I've done bits and pieces here or there, so maybe this time we'll have four or five lessons where we can cobble together a uh, a booklet or something on the angelic conflict because there's just very little out there. And it is one of those doctrines I hear from people again and again and again that once I heard that, everything began to make sense. It just, it just helped organize all the bits and pieces of history and doctrine and theology. Suddenly there was a, a, a doctrine, an umbrella doctrine that made, helped make everything else uh, make sense and come together. So we're going to look at the um, doctrine of the angelic conflict. Now, whenever you talk about angels, people always get curious about angels because we can't see them and we can't hear them. And and some people, of course, thought they have seen them and uh, have heard them. In uh, Old Testament times, there were people who did see and hear angels, and they had a specific role uh, in, in history. So... We often ask a number of different questions, like, who are the angels? Second, how many are there? What do they look like? We have all kinds of artist depictions from the uh, Renaissance, from the early Byzantine period all the way up to the present, with all sorts of imaginative depictions of what angels uh, look like. What are their powers? Now, most of the time, people aren't too concerned about the Holy angels, they're a little more concerned about the powers of demons and what demons can do to them. But we also have to understand what are the powers, what are the limitations of angels. Often you hear people uh, in some religious context who haven't been taught the Bible very well think that they can pray to angels to come and heal them, or they see visions of angels on screen doors or all kinds of things. So we need to see what the Bible actually says. Um, 
we need to say, what about people today in this age who think angels appear to them, who, are, who claim that angels have appeared to them and given them revelation? Of course, immediately, that should bring two groups to your mind, uh, both the Muslims and the Mormons. Interesting, they both start with M. Uh, they had a, uh, allegedly an angel appear to Muhammad and gave him the Qurans. And there was also allegedly an angel named Moroni who appeared to Joseph Smith on a hill outside of Palmyra, New York, who gave him the uh, little uh, uh, glasses, to dec- decoder glasses. I guess he didn't get them out of a bag of Cracker Jacks. They didn't have Cracker Jacks back then, but... Uh, little decoder glasses to decode the t- golden tablets on which was the uh, Book of Mormon. Very similar. In fact, I've always thought it would be a fascinating study to see the comparison between both of those religions. They're very close. It's, it's interesting how close those two are and many aspects of their history and their theology. Uh, another question, are there good and bad angels, and how do you know the difference? Another question, when were angels created? Now, this is always raised in relationship to a study of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. When exactly were the angels created? Before Genesis 1, sometime during the creation week, after the creation week, and then uh, depending on when they were created, when did Satan fall? When did that occur? And what relationship does Satan's fall and the uh, rebellion of the angels have to do with with, uh, human history? We are often asked, who are the fallen angels? Who are the demons, also called evil spirits? And what can they do to us? Can Christians be demon-possessed? What is demon influence? What What are these concepts? And, of course, I've addressed a lot of this in the book on spiritual warfare, but it really doesn't get in detail into the broader concept of just the angelic conflict itself. And finally, we need to ask this question, What does human history have to do with the angels, if anything? And I think it has a lot to do with the angels and with the angelic conflict, which is why when we come uh, to the book of Revelation, we find that there are numerous references to angels. There are, depending on which text you look at, I think uh, New American Standard has around 72 references to angels. The Nesselalon 27th edition has 67 references to angels in Revelation. The majority text has 63 references. There's some textual issues. There's some other things going on there. But we can just uh, summarize and say there's approximately 65 references to angels. 65 times the word angeloth is used in the book of Revelation. Now, that is out of a total of about 175 uses in the entire New Testament, the entire corpus of 27 uh, New Testament books, we have one book, the last one, that mentions angels approximately one-third of the total in the New Testament. That ought to tell us something right there, that, that more is said about angels in the book of Revelation than uh, any other book in the New Testament, and angels play a crucial role in the unfolding of the events of the last day. In fact, if we analyze the usage of the word angels in the book of Revelation, approximately 50 of those 65 occur in the period from Revelation 4 through Revelation 21, 
uh, verse 9. Up to that point, you're still talking about events before the millennium occurs. By Revelation 21.10, you're clearly into the millennial period, but there's a couple of references that have to do with what happens right at that time when Christ returns up through uh, Revelation 21.9. So 50 of the 65 references to angels in the book of Revelation occur in the tribulation period. So we can't, uh, just on statistical evidence alone, we recognize that we can't really comprehend the what's and the why's and the wherefores of the tribulation if we don't understand this within a broader context of God's uh, purpose and role uh, for the angels in history. So this will take a little time to go through this. It's not the kind of thing you go through uh, too rapidly on just one Sunday morning, but we'll spend four or five weeks on the subject. So let's just start off with a brief two-point summary of the basic doctrine of the angelic conflict. What do we mean by the angelic conflict? You'll hear different terms that are used to refer to this, the angelic rebellion, uh, spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict. Uh, all of these refer to the fact that there is an ongoing warfare, an ongoing rebellion that occurs in the invisible heavenly sphere between two groups of creatures known as angels and that they are all originally created by God, holy and righteous and just, but that at some time in eternity past there was a rebellion that occurred, and that this was the first introduction of sin and evil into uh, God's universe. So our definition of the angelic conflict is the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10 is a good place to go. That entire section from Ephesians 6, 10 down through uh, 18 uh, deals with man's or Christian's uh, relationship to this spiritual warfare. The second thing is just the course of the angelic conflict, just a brief summary of, of its course in history. It began at some time in the past, and we'll look at when it occurred, but it occurs at some time in the past when a creature named Lucifer, uh, in the Hebrew his name is actually Hillel ben Shahar, uh, uh, this dawn, uh, this, sorry, the morning star, son of the morning, that's the idea. Uh, you don't find the term Lucifer actually in the Hebrew text. This has, comes from a Latin word, for light as the light bearer, and so that is applied to him later on. But the actual name Lucifer isn't in the text. It's uh, Hillel ben Shahar. And this angel rebels against God, expresses a desire of his heart to be worshipped as God, to be elevated above all the other creatures, to think that he can rule and reign and run the cosmos better than God can because he wants all of the glory uh, for himself. And in that rebellion, he recruited approximately one-third of all the angels to his side, and this revolt occurred sometime, I believe, prior to the creation of man in, Matthew, uh, I mean, in Genesis chapter 1. I believe on the basis of Matthew 25:41, because there is a past uh, tense there, that these angels were recruited and uh, condemned to the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41 says it would be cast into the lake of fire, which was, was prepared, past tense, 
for the devil and his angels. At the time of Christ, it was already in existence, and it had originally been created and prepared for the devil and his angels. But for some reason, they aren't there. So God created them. There was this rebellion, and there was some sort of sentencing to the lake of fire that hasn't actually been carried out yet. So the question is, why not? Why didn't the angel and I mean the devil and his angels end up in the lake of fire if it's created and prepared for them and that sentence has already taken place what has led to this postponement I believe that Satan accused God of uh, we don't know precisely this is theological deduction and inference from a number of passages and a number of uh, themes in the scripture that Satan accused God of perhaps injustice related to the sentence that something along the lines, how could a just God send his creatures to the lake of fire? All I wanted to do was be like you. Why is that such a big deal? Why send your creatures to such a horrible, horrible punishment? Uh, along the same lines, perhaps, uh, Lucifer asked the question or raised the issue, uh, you just haven't given me a chance. You haven't given us a chance. We can do it just as well as you can, or I can do it as well as you can. You haven't given me the opportunity to show what I can do, that I can be God, I can run the creation and the universe just as well as you can. So there may be a number of different ways to articulate these ideas, but it seems to me that, that as you go through the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there are certain themes that dominate in relationship to creatureliness and leadership. We see this with Jesus and the disciples. They, they wonder at one point, say, well, in, in the resurrection, which one's going to sit at your right hand? And he begins to talk about the one who is least shall be first. There's, there's humility. Humility is contrasted with, and grace orientation is contrasted with Satan's character of pride and arrogance and his desire uh, to be first. There are other themes that you see throughout the scripture uh, related to arrogance, related to humility. You see the person who is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Lord Jesus Christ, who rather than uh, taking his rightful place uh, on the throne of heaven and remaining in heaven and utilizing all of his uh, divine attributes, decides instead to humble himself. See, there's that humility aspect again by obedience to God's plan and to go to the cross, suffer the death of a criminal on the cross to pay the penalty for the creature's sins. And the result of that is what? He is exalted and in the future time, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That the path to glory isn't self-exaltation and arrogance, but the path to glory is love and service and uh, orientation to the authority of God. And what God is demonstrating throughout all of history is that the creature, and why he allows Satan to continue, is to demonstrate that the creature can never do that which the, only the Creator can do. That no matter how innocuous the sin, no matter how, how small or minor the action may be, I mean, eating a piece of fruit certainly is not on anybody's top ten list of major major sins or evil activities. And yet it was in disobedience to God. And what God is showing is that when the creature who is finite, limited, no matter how brilliant that individual creature may be, no matter how close 
he may approximate the uh, abilities of deity, that he doesn't have those infinite capabilities, the omnipresence, the omnipotence, and the omniscience, to do what he wants to do. And the only way there can be order, peace, stability, and happiness in the creation is for the creatures to be oriented to the authority of God. And so what God is showing, I think, as part of this in letting Satan try to prove what he can do is to settle for all time this issue of authority orientation to God. And that no matter how much you may think you have happiness, no matter how much you may think you have found peace and stability in life, no matter how much you think you can make life work on your own, ultimately it will come crashing down. Ultimately, you will realize there is a vacuum in your soul that can never be filled by you or by anything in creation, and that it can only be filled by a right relationship with God who is the creator. But what we learn from Scripture is that creatures consistently repeat the same error that Satan began with. They desire to operate independently of God, autonomously from God, to make life work on their own terms. And so they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And people come up with all kinds of rationales and self-justifications and, and self-lies to say, well, next week I'll start getting serious about my Christian life or, or you know, I'm still young, so I want to sow my wild oats and then uh, eventually I will uh, look into this thing about Christianity and my relationship with God. And we don't realize that the decisions we make today that are decisions in carnality based on uh, our own uh, selfish, self-centered orientation to, to life and to the world can come back to haunt us with major negative consequences 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. The only basis for happiness, stability, and meaning in life is to be completely obedient submitted to uh, God's plan. So this is the course of the angelic conflict throughout human history. There is this battle. Satan has seemed to win at a few times with his temptation of, of Eve and then Adam in the garden that he seems to have won access to planet Earth as the god of this age, the prince and the power of the, of the air. He thought he had won the battle when he had the second person of the Trinity nailed to a cross uh, on Golgotha. But that uh, victory turned out to be his own defeat because eventually that second person of the Trinity who is raised and elevated above all angels uh, in his humanity is also in his humanity going to return to planet Earth and completely destroy the works of the devil. And that will occur in the future at the Battle of Armageddon, which is covered in Revelation chapter 19 and a number of other places in Scripture. So that this angelic rebellion that began uh, sometime uh, early Genesis, before Genesis 1, uh, that impacts all of human history all the way up to Revelation comes to a resolution and conclusion with the defeat of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet at the end of Revelation 19. The uh, uh, false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is put into a holding cell for a thousand years where he is chained, and then human history continues in the perfect environment or almost perfect environment of the millennial uh, kingdom. 
it's almost perfect because it's the earth is still going to be populated by a lot of sinners. And the millennial kingdom is going to show that it's not just Satan's fault. You can't pull the Flip Wilson line of the devil made you do it. It is our own sin nature. And that there will end up with being a rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, organizing all those human beings with their sin natures who decided to reject uh, Christ, even in that perfect environment of the of the millennial kingdom, and Satan will be released for a short time at the end of that period and lead them in a rebellion against God, and at that time God is going to destroy them in a fiery judgment. This occurs at the end of chapter chapter 20, so that we see that the whole panorama of history fits within a broader framework of the judicial activity of God towards Satan and the fallen angels. And it's only when we look at both of these uh, at the same time, when we look at God's dealing with the angels and God's dealing with the human race, that we can come to understand the purpose of history. And it opens up what, what happens at the end of Revelation because you get into some aspects of what's going on in Revelation when we get into about chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and we see Satan cast out of heaven and the, de- the third of the demons with him and they come down to planet earth and, and it, they're, they're, they're visible at that point and, and angels become visible and all of a sudden all God's creatures are visible unlike today and it just sounds something out of, like it's out of Star Trek or Star Wars or some science fiction but yet... It's not. It is future reality because God is going to bring to a head his plan of judgment and resolution of all of the injustices in history related to all of his creatures. And this is what comes to a conclusion at the end of the uh, tribulation period. So that gives us somewhat of of an overview of the course of the angelic conflict. Now, let's just begin here. We just have a few moments left before uh, in our time this morning, but let's just begin with a little orientation to angels and what the Bible teaches about angels. How do we know anything about angels, first of all? How do we know that angels exist? So uh, my first major category here is going to deal simply with the existence of the angels, and I have several points in that. How do we know that angels exist? I won't embarrass anybody this morning by having you raise your hands if you've seen an angel. I hope that if I said that, no one's hands would go up, but you never know uh, who will think that, hmm, yes, well, when I was uh, hiking somewhere or smoking something, I <laughs> drinking something, I saw an angel. Never know what backgrounds people have. How do we know that angels exist? Well, we only know things uh, four different ways as we've come to study in our uh, familiar chart on the basis of knowledge. There are actually four ways in which we come to know anything. The first three operate independently of God, and I call them three systems of knowledge. We have rationalism, which is based solely on human reason, faith in man's ability to use his reason to come uh, to truth. It, it puts all of its weight upon an independent use of logic and reason that's independent of any revelation or input from God. Uh, empiricism is the second category. This is what sometimes we, we call just experience. 
Empiricism is what we see, taste, touch, feel. It has to do with the senses of man. And the starting point is an understanding that, that when I experience something, when I see it, when I taste it, when I touch it, 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 it seems so real, it must be real, and I have faith that my mind is of such a, a, has such a clarity that I can, I can correctly interpret that sense data. So that when I wake up in the morning and I see an angel standing in the corner, I know there must be an angel there because I saw it and I trust my faculties and my ability to interpret it. So don't confuse me with whatever revelation may say. I'm going to stick with my uh, experience and, and, and experience trumps revelation for people like this. So again, in empiricism, there's the independent use of logic and reason. Don't confuse me with what God says this means. I'm just going to go along with what I think it means. Eve made that mistake in the garden when Satan said, Has God said? Oh, God didn't really mean this. See, that's not the truth. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you're going to become like him. You know, there's more to it than what he told you. So think on your own, woman. You know, use your own logic. Use your own reason. You know, look at that. It looks good. Go ahead and take it. You ever seen anybody die? You know anything about death? Um, God just lied to you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. So see, it's independent use of logic and reason. Then we have mysticism. Mysticism is the, the irrational side of rationalism and empiricism. This is man thinking that just whatever, whatever he comes up with on his own, uh, internally, his own uh, sen- just intuitions, whatever, that must be true because it just feels right. It just seems right. And it emphasizes inner private experience. And again, it's just faith in human ability that I had a dream in the middle of the night and it just seemed so real. I woke up, my heart was beating, I was breathing fast. Uh, it must have been something there. So that must be real. Again, it's the independent use of logic, but now it's a lack of no, uh, logic. It's a non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable source. That's why it's so hard to deal with anybody who's a mystic or quasi-mystic. You talk to charismatics who are who uh, have had an experience, and you try to try to say, "Well, let's go to the scriptures," and they say, "Oh, but it was so real. It had to have been uh, God who appeared to me. Jesus appeared to me. It was so real." How can you argue with that? Because their basic assumption is is that nothing rational, logical, whether it's sources of Scripture or not, can trump my inner feeling. It seems so real. And so it's, you've got to deal with the fact that, that, that is experience to be judged by Scripture or does, uh, or does experience judge Scripture? And experience must always be evaluated by Scripture, no matter how real it seems to you, that's why we're warned in Second Corinthians 11 that Satan appears as an angel of light. And he just feels so good. But you have to go with the facts of revelation to make those discernments. And that is our only source of truth, that God has given us objective revelation and we can know it. And we use that revelation then to be the interpretive grid for everything. So revelation... That is the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books are the final, complete, and sufficient source of knowledge and the foundation and framework for all knowledge. And so the Bible teaches us 
uh, certain things, and that's the only way we can know anything definitely about how angels exist. We can't know it through speculation. We can't know it through superstition. We can't know it through myth. We can't know, know it through religious tradition. We can only know it because God has communicated it uh, to us. And there is a tremendous amount of biblical evidence related to the existence of the angels. For example, 34 of the 66 books of the Bible, 17 Old Testament books and 17 New Testament books mention angels specifically. They're referred to by that name as existing creatures. Now, there's other names that are used for in reference to, to angels in the Scripture. Sometimes they're referred to as spirits, sometimes other things. But, but in terms of the use of angels, we find that in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible witness to the reality and the existence of angels. The basic terms that we find for angel are malaach in the Old Testament and Hebrew and angelos in the New Testament. Both of these have the same core meaning, which is a messenger. And we see that that this has the idea of related to being a servant. They serve God by carrying out His commands throughout the universe. That is their that is their function. These terms occur over three hundred times. In the Bible, and of those 300 times, a little less than a third of them are, are in Revelation, 65 times approximately in the book of Revelation. So that's a little less than one-third, uh, maybe a, a, a quarter of, of Revelation or so is uh, of the mention of angels in the Bible is in the book of Revelation. So it's important to understand this just to understand the nature of, of what is said in the uh, book of Revelation. We also have other terms that are used related to angels, the term cherubim. Uh, the I-M ending is the Hebrew plural, so we could say cherubs, seraphs, the, the archangel. They're called princes, sons of God, the power of the air, principalities, rulers of the darkness of this world, uh, thrones, dominions. All these terms relate to uh, angels, their positions, their structure, their hierarchy, and this, this in turn tells us that it's a vital part of revelation and understanding what God has to say to us. They're referred to many times by Jesus Christ as real creatures. Jesus refers to and understands them as real creatures. Now, next time I'll talk about some of these examples, but the importance of this is, as far as we'll go today, is that if Jesus affirms the existence of angels and treats them as real creatures with real abilities, then to deny the existence of angels is to deny the veracity of Jesus Christ. It's to say that he was just accommodating himself to the superstition of the people of his day, which is what some people try to say, or it implies that Jesus was just ignorant and a liar or was just deceived by the uh, lack of knowledge, the mythological, superstitious, legendary viewpoints of his own generation. It implies that the Bible is, is wrong and that it's just a human book, and that is uh, unacceptable. For the believer, the only source of information and authority about angels, demons, Satan, what they can do, what their limitations are, what their powers are, is the Bible. So we have to take time to uh, get into this in some detail. We will start developing the uh, role of angels or Jesus Christ's reference to angels next time along with the creation of the angels, when they were created, how they were created, and the original 
uh, rebellion of Satan uh, when we meet next Sunday morning. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're so uh, grateful that we can look at your word that when we ask these profound questions of life as to what we're here for, what's our purpose, why is man here, is there something unique, distinct, important about man, that we have clear answers in your word and that we can study your word and come to an understanding of these things. That when it comes to understanding that there are other uh, creatures in the universe that are uh, rational, that are intelligent, that have certain abilities and powers, that we know what those are and who they are because of the revelation of your word. Father, we recognize that throughout all of human history, we're dealing with the struggle between righteousness and unrighteousness, good and evil, and that evil and unrighteousness was conquered for all time. Your justice was vindicated for all time at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin, that you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to planet Earth to die on the cross for our sins, And there he resolved the entire angelic conflict. There he gained victory that is ultimately implemented at his second coming and finally and fully at the conclusion of the millennium. And everything that goes on in between is designed by you to deal with all of the the, uh, multiple facets that develop the consequences that develop throughout the universe from just those acts of sin generated by first Satan in the angelic conflict and then Adam in the Garden of Eden. Right now, there may be someone here who's never put their faith alone in Christ alone. This is your opportunity to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to recognize that you are a sinner and violation of God's standard and under the condemnation of eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, but that There is one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. By believing in him, you can have eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, if you trust in Christ as your Savior, God the Father knows in whom you are trusting, and at that instant, you are given his righteousness, you are declared righteous, and you are given eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, encourage us with them, and that you are in control of history And history is moving towards an ultimate destiny and conclusion and vindication of righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.